Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello, and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, writer, storyteller, and history nerd Carly Florison, and it's really great to have your company here today. I've got another fascinating story for you. This story has shipwreck, disaster, brave rescues, tragedy, heroes, and even a bit of romance in it. But before we get into the story, to begin with today, I would like to acknowledge the Wandandi Noongar people of the Bustleton area, which is where this story takes place, and also the Noongar people of the Esperance area, which is where I'm recording today. The First Nations people have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and I just want to acknowledge that and pay my respects to their leaders past, present and emerging before we get into the story. Also, just a little content warning before we begin today. We do talk about some massacres of Indigenous people in this story. If that is something that is going to be distressing for you, then perhaps give this one a miss. Okay, so let's get straight into the story today. This is quite a long one, so I'm going to dive straight into it. This is a fascinating story about a shipwreck and a rescue and the family that was involved in that rescue. This is the story of the wreck of the Georgette and Grace Bustle and Sam Isaacs who helped to rescue people from that wreck, as well as the story of the Bustle family themselves. On the 1st of December 1876, a steamship called the SS Georgette was heading down the coast away from Fremantle. The ship was in trouble. The Georgette, under the command of Captain John Godfrey, was heading for Adelaide, making some stops along the coast on the way. She had stopped in briefly at Bustleton and Bunbury and was heading south around the coast when she sprung a leak very early in the morning. The bilge pump did not seem to be working, so the crew started to bail out the water using buckets. By 4am that morning, most of the passengers were helping to bail out the water as well. As one of the passengers noted, the sea was rather rough, but nothing to hurt a ship that was in the least bit seaworthy. Well, unfortunately, it would seem that the Georgette was not in the least bit seaworthy, as by 6am there were about 8 feet of water in the engine room. The water extinguished the fires that ran the steam engines, leaving them with much less power, having to now rely on just sail power. It was now becoming obvious that the Georgette was in serious trouble. Now, before I get much further, let me just tell you a little bit about the Georgette. First of all, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, this is not the first time that you've heard about the Georgette. If you listen to the story of the Catalpa rescue, you might recall that when the Irish political prisoners escaped from the Fremantle prison on board the Catalpa, the Western Australian governor sent a steamship after them to try to recapture them. That steamship was none other than the Georgette. Now, I don't want to spoil the story of what happened to the prisoners on board the Catalpa, but it was quite a dramatic episode all round, so if you haven't heard it, go back and have a listen. The Georgette had been built in 1872 in Scotland and arrived in Fremantle in 1873. She was a two-masted schooner, with a two-cylinder steam engine that gave 24 horsepower per cylinder. Now, that's a bit of a difference to ships these days, isn't it? She was owned by Thomas Connor, who bought the ship for £14,000. The Georgette was used as a mail ship, 
and also used to transport goods up and down the coast for the newly established settlements. For a while, the Georgette was used for a mail run from Geraldton to Albany, stopping at ports all along the way. After this, she was used to transport goods along the Western Australian coast or even as far as Adelaide. On one of her previous voyages, she had run aground on Murray Reef, off the coast of Rockingham. She was repaired, though, and should have been entirely seaworthy. On this particular journey, the Georgette was transporting 145 Jarrah logs, valued at £870, along with bales of leather, casks of whale oil, and 260 hides, although hides of what animal, I'm not 100% sure. The total value of the cargo was £1,257. When the ship was being loaded, one of the Jarrah logs was dropped into the hold, and it is possible that this damaged the hull and caused the leak. So anyway, back to the Georgette. On the morning of the 1st of December, 1876. At this stage, she was off the coast of Kalgara Bay, about 10 kilometres south of Margaret River. The captain was steering the ship towards the shore, but realising that she wasn't going to make it, they decided to launch the lifeboats. There were 50 passengers on board as well as the crew. And again, if you're a regular podcast listener, you will already be familiar with two of these passengers, James and William Dempster. Western Australia had a very small European population back in those days, so perhaps it's not surprising that some of the same characters pop up in a few different stories. The Dempster brothers, you might recall, were the first Europeans to settle in the Esperance area, and we talked about them in the episode about the Sinclair family. So if you haven't heard that one yet, take a listen. I will do a whole episode on that family at some stage, as they're pretty interesting characters, but that's a story for another day. So, the Georgette had three small lifeboats on board, and they decided to launch them right away. They loaded 20 women and children onto the first boat, and it was immediately apparent that this little boat was quite leaky and probably overloaded. Meanwhile, the second boat slipped off one of the stays as it was being lowered into the water, and it started smashing against the side of the Georgette. Remember, this is in quite rough seas. William Dempster managed to climb into this second boat in order to keep it away from the side of the ship. And then, somehow, the first lifeboat, loaded with mostly women and children, got caught against the side of the Georgette and capsized, throwing everyone into the sea. Here is a quote from one of the women who was in the lifeboat, a woman called Mrs Annie Simpson. Just then, another big wave struck the lifeboat and threw it against the ship's side. It broke clean in half from end to end, and I shall never forget the awful screams that went up. All in a few seconds, we were struggling in the water, and it was then that most of the lives were lost. I floated out on my back, saw the broken boat turned over and float away, and saw the Georgette for the last time. So at this stage, William Dempster is the only person in one of the lifeboats and the other lifeboat has capsized and broken apart. From here, I'm going to let the Dempster brothers tell you the story for a little bit. This is from a letter written by the brothers and later published in the Inquirer newspaper. Here is what they say. My brother, William, seeing the inevitable consequences of the calamity, pushed his boat up as close as he could and helped those in the water into the boat, 
but he had not strength to get them in, as there were so many all on one side, and the boat was very full of water. I saw him try his utmost, but the boat's gunwale went clean under water. The cabin boy jumped overboard, but missed the boat. He then managed to get onto the bottom of the lifeboat. That's the lifeboat that was broken apart, the second one. I caught hold of an oar, pulled off my coat, and quickly jumped over the stern to go to my brother's assistance. I was lucky enough to come up close to the boat, but on, op- on the opposite side to where the women and children were clinging to it. My brother caught hold of my hands and helped me in, and we then got the young children on board. I went aft and passed the first woman I could get hold of round the stern onto the other side, and held her there until my brother helped me get her and the others into the boat. They on board the ship pulled our boat under the steamer's stern, and the first mate got in. They then cast us off from the ship to pick up the second mate, who jumped overboard after I had got into the boat, but had missed her and was sitting on the bottom of the lifeboat with the cabin boy. Our first effort was to get our boat bailed out. We then went in search of the other boat, which we soon found and pulled up close to. Those sitting on her bottom jumped off, and we soon had them on board. They were, of course, delighted to see us as they were beginning to despair. By this time, the Georgette was over a mile from us, headed for shore with a freshening breeze. We had no chance of overtaking her, so we shaped our own course for shore. The sea was too high to head directly for shore, so we edged in as much as possible, James being kept constantly bailing. It was at this time that we were exposed to great danger, for the wind continuing to rise, the sea had got up to a great pitch, and the difficulty of keeping the boat free increased instantly. We were still in no enviable condition, twenty miles off the Lewin in a small and very leaky boat, without sails or rudder, and only three oars, with a crew of ten adults and ten children, all wet through and miserable. So that's the Dempster brothers. The Dempster brothers, William and James, along with the others in the small boat, managed to rig up a baby's blanket as a sail, and they then managed to make it to shore safely, although it took them most of the day. They then sent some of the men to find help, and they made it to Harwood's homestead, where they were given food and shelter. Sadly, two women and five children drowned when the first lifeboat capsized. But let's go back to the rest of the passengers and crew on the Georgette. After seeing what had happened to the first two lifeboats, they decided not to launch the third boat, and instead the ship just drifted towards shore for the rest of that day, taking in more water. Then, late in the afternoon, the Georgette hit a sandbank just off the coast of Kalgadup Bay. The passengers on board launched the third lifeboat, but that too very quickly capsized in the two-metre swell. Now, let's just take a little pause here for a moment because we're going to introduce the Bustle family. The Bustle family were originally from England. Mrs Ellen Louisa Bustle, along with her husband, William Bustle, who was an Anglican clergyman, had nine children. After William died, Ellen and her children decided to emigrate to Australia. The first four boys, who were adults by this time, John, Joseph, Alfred and Charles, emigrated to Fremantle in 1830. John, the oldest, was 27 years old. After that, Ellen Louisa, along with her three daughters and her youngest son, 
emigrated in 1833. One of the boys, William, stayed in England. When they arrived, the Bustles found that all of the good farmland around the Fremantle and Perth areas had already been claimed. Governor Stirling suggested to them that they go south and try to find some good land in that area. To begin with, they settled in the area that would later become Augusta. That's on the southernmost tip of the west coast of Australia. But they struggled a lot in that area. John did some exploring and he found that there was good land to be found to the north of Augusta. So they settled there and established a property called Cattle Chosen. And as I'm sure you might have already guessed, this area later became a town that we now know as Bustleton. As a small aside, just on the topic of how different things in that area were named, in 1801, the French explorer Nicholas Borden was leading an expedition along the Western Australian coast when one of his sailors, a man called Thomas Vass, was lost in the surf and presumed drowned. Vass River, Vass Estuary, and the small town site of Vass, near Bustleton, were all named after him. And Vass is also now an electoral district that encompasses Bustleton. Of course, there have been many different rumours that Thomas Vass didn't actually drown and went on to do other different things. But those are probably stories for another day as well. Of course, the land where the Bustles settled was not unoccupied land. It was occupied by the Wandandi Nunga people who lived in the local area. And in those early days, there was a great deal of unrest, a great deal of conflict between the settlers and the Nunga people who lived in the area. And the Bustles themselves were involved in several massacres that took place of local Indigenous people. The first of these was in 1837. After one of their calves went missing, Alfred Bustle, along with the Chapman family, who lived nearby, and a local constable, murdered nine Wandandi Noongar people, as they presumed that they were responsible for the missing calf. After this massacre, a Wandandi warrior speared one of the Bustles in the arm and threw spears at one of the women in retribution for the massacre. Also, notably, of course, the Bustles were occupying the Wandandi people's land. None of the Bustles were even seriously injured, but still they tracked down the tribe and shot and killed at least six Wandandi people, including women and children, injuring several more who likely died later on. These events were recorded by Bessie Bustle in her diary. Later that year, the Bustles captured an Aboriginal child that they kept as a hostage for 10 weeks. In 1839, a man called Henry Camden, who was a colonial settler living in Perth. He was looking for a wife and he came down to meet Fanny Bustle with the view that he might marry her. So while Camden was staying with the Bustles, they set a trap for a Noongar man that they suspected of coming to steal food. They shot and killed this man and then they went off to hunt down his companions, leaving Camden to bury the body of the man that they had just killed. Camden then made the decision that he would not marry Fanny Bustle after all, and he went back to Perth, perhaps wisely, I think. In 1841, a white man was killed by a Noongar warrior called Gay Ware after a disagreement. After this, John Bustle, along with Captain John Malloy, led a group of settlers who massacred 
dozens of Wandandi Noongar people. The exact number is unknown, as the settlers deliberately downplayed the events that took place. And interestingly, Bessie Bustle's diary is missing four pages from this time period. In 1842, Charles Bustle shot and killed a little Noongar girl called Carmen Goot while questioning her about stealing flour from the settlement. And of course, while all of these incidents were terrible and shocking, to me that just seems the most heartless thing of all, to shoot a hungry child. Charles claimed that it was an accident. Charles Bustle was charged with manslaughter and he was fined one shilling. All of this is to say that the settlement of this area was a real tragedy for the Wandandi Noongar people. I include these details because I really believe that it's important that they, are, that they are remembered and recounted, not brushed under the rug and ignored. We can't, of course, undo the events of the past, but we can and we must acknowledge them and acknowledge the terrible trauma and loss experienced by the local Indigenous people at the time of settlement. Anyway... By the 1870s, when our shipwreck takes place, Alfred Bustle, one of the the Bustle boys, had moved to the Margaret River area. He married a woman called Ellen Heppingstone, and they had six sons and eight daughters, and we're going to meet one of the daughters in just a minute. Alfred Bustle also became a politician. He was a member of the Western Australian Legislative Council of the time. So, back to our shipwreck. Remember, the Georgette is stuck on a sandbank not too far from shore, but there's heavy breaking waves all around and their one lifeboat has just capsized. They lost the other two lifeboats that morning, one of them was wrecked, and the other floated away with the Dempster brothers and a number of other passengers and crew on board. So the surviving passengers managed to right the lifeboats and get some of them into it. But by this time, a 24-year-old Noongar stockman by the name of Sam Yebel Isaacs had spotted the Georgette and realised that she was in trouble. He rode as hard as he could to the Bustle's homestead. He, he was the stockman who worked for the Bustle family. And he rode to raise the alarm. And he found that only Ellen and her 16-year-old daughter, Grace, were there. He and Grace rode back to the coastline as fast as they could. And here, I'll read an excerpt from a newspaper account. This was in the Inquirer and Commercial News from The Time. This newspaper account says, They were all in the water and in the greatest danger when, on top of the steep cliff, appeared a young lady on horseback. They did not think a horse could come down that cliff, but down that dangerous place this young lady rode at speed. There were lives to be saved, and with the same fearless and chivalrous bravery, that urged Grace Darling to peril her life for her fellow creatures and gave her a name in all English history thereafter, Grace Bustle rode down that cliff, urging her horse into the boiling surf and out beyond the second line of roaring breakers until she reached the boat where the women and children were in such peril. So both Sam and Grace rode their horses into the surf and helped to pull the shipwreck survivors to shore encouraging the shipwreck survivors to hold on to the horses' saddles and tails. And to be honest, most of the survivors were at this stage already close to shore. But if you've ever been caught in the surf when there's a large swell, you'll know that sometimes it's very hard to get through the big waves that are breaking all around you and it can be very dangerous. 
In any case, according to Sam and Grace, it took four hours for them to get all of the shipwreck survivors to the shore. And of course, I think their horses deserve a lot of recognition here. What excellent horses they were. One man was left out on the ship and Sam was sent out to get him. Then Sam and Grace helped the survivors go back to their homestead, where they were looked after until they could be transported back to Perth. So as you'll notice from the newspaper article that I read out, the coverage of the event by the papers at the time breathlessly lauded Grace as an absolute hero and quite often downplayed Sam's role. In fact, that same newspaper article that I read out goes on to say, A man was left on the boat and he could not get to shore until Miss Bustle sent her black servant on horseback to aid him. And of course, aside from this being a really disrespectful way to speak about Sam Yebel Isaacs, who was at the time a heroic rescuer who had raised the alarm in the first place, we know that he wasn't at all a servant. He was a stockman who was employed by the Bustle family. Some of the other newspaper coverage from the time doesn't mention Sam at all. Just Grace, who was compared to Grace Darling, an English lighthouse keeper's daughter who was lauded as a hero after she rescued some people from a shipwreck. So Grace was given a silver medal by the Royal Humane Society to recognise her bravery. And at the same time, Sam was given a bronze medal. And I think this is a really interesting case study about the bias of the time and how it was reflected in the newspaper coverage. Sam really did play the bigger role in the rescue. But because he was an Aboriginal stockman, and probably also because Grace was a 16-year-old girl, her contribution was magnified and absolutely glorified, whereas his was ignored. And I think that's a significant point to keep in mind when looking at documents from such a time period. We must absolutely keep in mind the bias of the time and how that might have affected the way that things were recorded. It was not at all unusual in that time period for the achievements and the contributions of Indigenous people to be ignored or to be downplayed quite significantly. Anyway, after these events, a young surveyor from Perth called Frederick Drake Brockman heard about Grace Bustle and her bravery. He rode to Margaret River from Perth to meet her, and later on they were married. They went on to have seven children. Both Gracetown, near Margaret River, and Lake Grace in the Wheatbelt are named in Grace Bustle's honour. And as for Sam Yebel Isaacs, there was a bit of an uproar when he only received a bronze medal to Grace's silver medal. After that, he was also granted 100 acres of land, which is slightly ironic given that he was a Noongar man, so of course, traditionally, it was his land anyway. He went on to raise a large family, And just this year, an area of land near Margaret River was named Yebel in his honour. Many of his descendants still live in the area and he is recognised by them as a hero. And interestingly, one of the survivors of the shipwreck was a young man called George Leake, who would go on to become Western Australia's third premier. And as for the Georgette, there was an investigation into the sinking. All in all, 12 people had lost their lives in this tragedy. There were rumours at the time that the ship had been deliberately scuttled, although these rumours eventually came to nothing. Charges of negligence were brought against Captain Godfrey, 
But he was acquitted of these charges, although the court did say that he was guilty of a large error in judgment in failing to take further action when he realised that the bilge pumps were not working. Captain Godfrey's captain licence was suspended for 18 months, but later on he did go back to sea as the captain of another ship. The Georgette's Bell and a few other artefacts are on display in the Augusta Historical Museum. And, I might add, Augusta and Margaret River are both incredibly beautiful places and very deservedly renowned for the wine that they produce. So if you get the chance, and if you haven't been before, absolutely do go and visit. The wreck of the Georgette lies about 100 metres offshore on Redgate Beach in Calgada Bay, and there is a plaque there commemorating the bravery of the rescuers Sam Yebel Isaacs and Grace Bussell, and also those who lost their lives in the wreck. And so that's the story. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks also for your patience in waiting for this episode to come out. We've had a few illnesses in the family in recent times. And as you can probably hear from my voice, I am still now just recovering from a cold. But I will have another episode out for you very soon. If you want some information about the sources that I've used in compiling this podcast, you can check out my website, which is www.wildwapodcast.com. And I would just like to particularly mention that I used the WA Museum's Shipwreck Database as a, one of the major sources for this article. It was very helpful. And it's a really interesting database to have a look at if you, if you want to find out some more information. If you want to keep up to date with when episodes are coming out, you can follow me on Twitter at Carly Florison or I'm on Facebook at Carly Florison Writer. You can also get in touch with me by email, wildwapodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and tune in soon for another episode of Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past.